July 15, 1944. At the height of German atrocities during World War II, a young, resilient, and optimistic young girl hid in the secret annex of a multi-story Dutch house with her Jewish family. Located at 263 Prinsengrot in Amsterdam, little Anne Frank scribbled away in near darkness for 761 days, only occasionally peeking out the window to a world that would have her arrested, deported, and executed for the crime of simply being born. After enduring over two years of an isolated and confined existence, more ghost than girl, Anne penned her inner frustrations with the reality that was unfolding around her. It's utterly impossible for me to build my life on a foundation of chaos, suffering, and death. I see the world being slowly transformed to a wilderness. I hear the approaching thunder that one day will destroy us too. I feel the suffering of millions. And yet, when I look up at the sky, I somehow feel that everything will change for the better. That this cruelty too will end. That peace and tranquility will return once more. In the meantime, I must hold on to my ideals. Perhaps it will come when I'll be able to realize them. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. The Nuremberg Trials. Prosecuting Nazi Atrocities. Part 3. Up until early March of 1946, the overwhelming majority of accusations were coming from the prosecution side of the courtroom. The tribunal had, to this point, admitted tens of thousands of evidentiary documents, heard several dozens of witnesses, seen and heard detailed presentations, and watched films of the crimes being perpetrated. But it was now time for the defense cases and there was no doubt an atmosphere of restrained joy and optimism within the ranks of the accused Nazis sitting in the dock. For it was becoming increasingly apparent that the wartime alliance of the Western liberal democracies with communist Russia was disintegrating by the day. News began to make its rounds in the Nuremberg Detention Center on March 6th that Prime Minister Churchill had made his infamous Iron Curtain speech. From Stettin in the Baltic, To Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent, and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. If now the Soviet government tries by separate action to build up a pro-communist Germany in their areas, this will cause new serious difficulties in the American and British zones and will give the defeated Germans the power of putting themselves up to auction between the Soviets and the Western democracies. Whatever conclusions may be drawn from these facts, in fact, they are. This is certainly not the liberated Europe we fought to build up. I do not believe that Soviet Russia desires war. What they desire is the fruits of war and the indefinite expansion of their power and doctrines. Uh, but what we have to consider here today, while time remains, is the permanent prevention of war and the establishment of conditions of freedom and democracy as rapidly as possible in all countries. (laughs) Our difficulties and dangers will not be removed by closing our eyes to them. They will not be removed by mere waiting to see what happens. 
nor will they be removed by a policy of appeasement. What is needed is a settlement. This was a public address wherein Churchill posited the idea of leveling a permanent counterforce against the expansionist agenda of the Soviet Union. The USSR's belligerence was becoming apparent, and the totalitarian nature of their political system posed a direct threat to Western interests in the post-war period. Indeed, it would later be revealed that in May of 1945, Churchill ordered the drafting of Operation Unthinkable, this was a military plan to push the Soviet Union out of Germany and Poland to uphold the Yalta Agreement. So with the Allied powers becoming increasingly entangled in a Cold War, the defendants at Nuremberg were clamoring for an internal collapse of the tribunal powers. Hermann Goering even gleefully quipped to his co-defendants, quote, What did I tell you? Last summer I couldn't even hope to live till autumn, and now I'll probably live through the winter, summer and spring many times over. Mark my words, they'll be fighting amongst themselves before a sentence can ever be produced on us." Unquote. And with a fighting spirit of misplaced confidence, Goering forced the issue to become the first defendant to be represented by the defense. It was no secret to the Allied delegations that winning the case against Goering was of critical importance to the overall trial itself. For he was one of Nazism's spiritual fathers, a powerful and notorious figure in German life one of the architects of World War II, and the second in command of the Reich. In terms of the Nuremberg trials, and of the precedent of the International Military Tribunal, convicting Goering was of key importance to the Allied cause for justice and retribution. Goering's defense team first called upon an old friend from World War I to testify on his behalf. He was a Luftwaffe general named Karl Bodenschantz. Once on the stand, he claimed that Goering not only disapproved of anti-Semitism, but was highly critical of the barbarous attacks against the Jews on Kristallnacht. And furthermore, he insisted that Goering was the lone voice of reason towards Hitler, and he advocated maintaining the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to avoid a potentially devastating war with the Soviet Union, also adding that he wished to make peace with England after the French campaign. Unfortunately, the assertions fell somewhat flat, as it was obvious to all present that Bodenschantz was reading from a prepared script throughout his testimony. Although the defense indirectly noted that this may have been necessary since he was present at the time of the failed assassinations of Hitler in 1944. They noted how Bodenschantz was still a somewhat broken man, with possible PTSD because of the mental and physical injuries he suffered from the bomb explosion. But upon his cross-examination by Justice Jackson, his testimony lay in tatters. Jackson skillfully entrapped Herr Bodenschantz into reasserting Goering's disgust at the violence of Kristallnacht, but then asked why he would then insist on making matters worse for the Jewish community afterwards. Jackson asked, quote, Was it known to you that on November 12th, two days after the Kristallnacht destruction, that Goering promulgated the order to collectively fine all the Jews of Germany a billion Reichsmarks for the damages they suffered, and that he also confiscated their insurance rights and passed a new decree excluding them from economic life? Did you know about this?" Unquote. Bowdoin Schatz replied with, Yes, I have heard of it, but I personally had nothing to do with the idea and with this decree, as I was only the military adjutant. Jackson asked again, but, but these decrees were promulgated two days after this pogrom that you say he complained about. Is this correct? Bodenschantz replied that he didn't understand the connection that was trying to be made. Justice Jackson then said, that is all, your honor. This put the general into a sweaty confusion and undermined anything he brought up on the stand. It was clear that he either didn't know enough to be on the stand or he was simply there to be Goering's pawn. Goering's next witness was State Secretary of the Luftwaffe, Erhard Milch. Not only was this man a confidant of Albert Speer, who was also on the Central Planning Board, but he was additionally tasked with allocating materials between the various armed service communities. Interestingly, he was originally slated as the witness for the prosecution, 
but he quickly changed his mind once he saw the allegedly lackluster conditions his former comrades were being subjected to. In Milch's eyes, the Nazi hierarchy were patriots and heroes, not lowly criminals to be locked up and fed prison gruel. Once on the stand, Milch invented a testimony that the Luftwaffe's primary objective was to defend the Reich and that anything offensive was of secondary importance to Goering and Nazi high command. He additionally insisted that Goering was opposed to the war with the Soviet Union and that he would have preferred to uphold the Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement instead. He went on to posit the idea that Goering was opposed to war crimes committed against POWs. This was because he remembered being a soldier himself who was once shot down in an aerial dogfight. Milch testified that Goering would openly declare how POWs are our comrades as brothers in arms and we should treat them with mutual respect as soldiers. Jackson then ran a clinic for the courtroom on how to thoroughly discredit a seemingly credible witness. He slowly baited Milch to reassert his role within the Central Planning Board so he could establish firm links between him, Speer, and Sockel. After Milch agreed to the relationships that Jackson brought up, documents were presented showing that all members of the planning board were well aware that an overwhelming majority of the labor used for the Reich was of a slave nature. Milch was indeed at the meetings in which forced labor was openly discussed, planned, and allotted. He quickly went on the defensive and asserted that although these things may be true, he had nothing to do with the war crimes. Unbeknownst to him, Jackson then produced documents showing that Milch had personally ordered his men to hang Russian POWs in their captivity. At the end of the cross-examination, it was painfully obvious to all that Milch did absolutely nothing to help Goering's defense and made his own situation dramatically worse. He would eventually be sentenced to life in prison by subsequent war crimes trials in 1947. Next to testify for Hermann Goering was Field Marshal Albert Kesselring. He too was strongly asserting that the Luftwaffe's role was only to project strength and to protect the German borders. He also claimed the Air Force was purely an invention of self-preservation, as opposed to an armed force that aided an aggressive war campaign across Europe. For the tribunal prosecution, it was absolutely critical to correctly categorize this idea because anything that put count one into question would jeopardize a huge chunk of their case. Indeed, it was the conspiratorial nature of the Nazis' crimes that made them exceptionally nefarious. of the establishment in Germany of a police state by the National Socialist Party. And I want to ask you on whether it is not the fact that the police state rested on two institutions very largely. First, the secret political police, and secondly, the concentration camp. And both the secret police and the concentration camp were established by Hermann Goering. Is that not a fact known to you? Just answer my questions. Your lectures can be reserved for your own counsel, and I shall ask to have you so instructed. Just answer my question. Wasn't the concentration camp also established by Hermann Goering? You don't know about that. Did you favor the, did you favor the police state? For they were arguing it was a planned war of aggression predicated upon racism, political ideology, and unadulterated greed. And Goering's Luftwaffe 
They were the tip of the proverbial spear. Through vigorous cross-examination, Justice Jackson had Kesselring admit that of the entire German fleet, half of their planes were fighters and half were bombers. Why would a purely defensive air force need so many bombers? Kesselring was also forced to admit that the Luftwaffe was a central element of the Blitzkrieg, or lightning strike style of war, that Germany utilized throughout the duration of World War II. And after this legal dismantling, the defense was left with precious little to show for their efforts. The final witness to then testify on behalf of Goering was a Swedish businessman named Berger Dalrus. He attempted, once again, to demonstrate that Goering had been opposed to aggressive warfare and that he arranged, along with Dalrus, to provide an audience with sympathetic British industrialists to persuade Hitler towards peace. The defense wondered aloud why a man bent on planning a war would go to such lengths to try and avoid said war to begin with. Unfortunately though, Prosecutor Maxwell Fife, he had read Dalrus's book. Within the pages, it was shown that, of his own account, the Nazis were actively drafting war plans despite pretending publicly to be negotiating for peace. Indeed, Dalrus even recalled a meeting with Hitler and Goering wherein the Fuhrer was ranting wildly about destroying the enemy and conquering lands that were rightfully German. During this meeting, Goering was said to have shown his leader unquestioning loyalty and agreement towards all the remarks given. Additionally, probably because of his overbearing morphine addiction, Goering was making wild demands about the Polish government handing over chunks of their country to the Nazis. This was for no other reason besides their entitlement to land which would be ceded under divine providence. And in the end, Dalrus ended up seeming more like a witness for the prosecution than the defense once the Allied team was through as his testimony. Ultimately, it was another failed attempt by Goering to skirt the blame for the crimes he was indicted on. On March 13th, Hermann Goering entered the witness box. It was a last-ditch effort to save his own life while simultaneously defending the Nazi legacy and his beloved Fuhrer. And although he was not in his prime, the Reichsmarschall did have a few factors going for him as the prosecution continued. To begin, all the evidentiary source material was written in German. This allowed him to instantly understand the documents submitted to the tribunal, while the Allies had to rely on interpretation. This presented a possible opening for semantics and crafty wordplay. Additionally, he was no longer under the spell of a paracodine addiction. The prison commandant, Burton Andrus, had ordered the overweight drug abuser to be weaned off his pills, to eat healthy meals, and to get in some sort of shape through regular exercise. The result after five and a half months of this regime was a nearly 70 pound drop in body weight, a drug-free life, and a sharper mind than he had ever had since World War I. And for a man with an alleged IQ of 138, these were no small details heading into an intellectual cage match with Justice Jackson. Goering's primary defense counsel, Dr. Stammer, he led off his questioning by having the Reichsmarschall explain, with a veneer of patriotism, his upbringing in World War I heroics as a decorated pilot. Goering then went on to outline his first meeting with Hitler. This was where they both agreed that the Treaty of Versailles was an onerous and destructive tool being utilized to keep Germany from fulfilling its destiny. He then went on to summarize his involvement with the failed Beer Hall push and then distanced himself from one of the organizations being prosecuted at Nuremberg. This was the SA. These were the original brown-shirted Nazi paramilitary forces and personal security for the party hierarchy. Goering's testimony, which started off choppy and curt, slowly evolved as he gave ever longer answers to the questions being posed to him. He entered the stand with shaking hands and constantly licking his lips, an overt sign of nervousness, but his wits came back to him as he proceeded. The courtroom was captivated with his eloquent manner of speaking, 
and how he described his rise to the top of the Nazi hierarchy without a glint of remorse or guilt. The highest-ranking Nazi official in captivity was weaving a tale of national duty and ethnic self-preservation. Amongst the most notable aspects of his testimony was his repeated claim that the Nazi party was a justified political force. Justified on the grounds that they violently opposed the rising trend of communism within the German Republic. In reference to the reforms imposed by the newly minted Chancellor Hitler in 1933, Goering said, quote, We suggested to the former parties of the Reichstag that they should dissolve themselves because they no longer served any purpose. And those that did not dissolve themselves were dissolved by us. I'm speaking, of course, about the communist and social democrat parties. Unquote. Adding further still that repressive measures needed to be taken against the Bolsheviks because of the threat of national security they posed, as terrorists, as revolutionaries, and as political rabble-rousers. Goering explained how they expanded the secret police force, the Gestapo, to counter this threat. Quote, the danger definitely existed at the time of political tension that revolutionary acts might have taken place on the part of the communists. For even after we came to power, political murders of national socialists by their party, they did not stop and at times, they even increased. The information I received pointed towards a swing in violence towards Hitler. Therefore, I was forced to enlarge the instruments of police powers and their presence." Unquote. And then he spoke of the newly crafted concentration camps designed to remove and detain political enemies of the Reich from civil society. Quote, I decided to have the communist functionaries and their leaders arrested at once. It was clear to me that even if I arrested only the most important and most dangerous of these functionaries, it would still involve several thousands of individuals. Only one possibility was available to me, that of protective custody. But I also want to stress that this was a political act for the defense of the state. Therefore, I gathered these people into concentration camps." Unquote. He went on to note that even after arresting many of the communist leaders, investigators found ample evidence of a planned and heavily armed insurrection against the Nazi government, the evidence of which was never presented to the court. But Goering was quick to note that he was heavily involved with the camps up until 1934, even going so far as to note how he ordered the release of 5,000 low-level camp internees on Christmas Day. The implicit message of his testimony was clear. It was that of a benevolent and wise Reichsmarschall who was proud of the work he did to protect Germany from descending into a hell of communism. After five consecutive days of Goering's testimony and questioning by his own legal team, it was now the prosecution's turn. And on March 18, 1946, Justice Jackson stepped up to the podium and began what was to be the main event of the entire Nuremberg proceedings. The heavyweight match was finally upon the courtroom. The arch enemy of the world's scorn was now face to face with the tribunal protagonist in a battle of wits and rhetoric. Jackson skipped formalities and dove right into his cross-examination, asking boldly of Goering, quote, You are perhaps aware that you are the only living man who can expound the true purposes of the Nazi party and the inner workings of its leadership. End quote. Goering coolly replied that, yes, he was perfectly aware of this reality. Jackson then continued his attack by asking, quote, You, from the very beginning, intended to overthrow and later did overthrow the German Republic, did you not? Unquote. Goering's reply was a succinct, Yes, of course, as far as I am concerned, that was my firm intention. But all of these things were necessary things, as I understood you. To protect ja, die, diese Dinge wurden notwendig aufgrund der vorhandenen Gegnerschaft. Yeah. And uh, I assume that uh, that is the only kind of government that you think can function in Germany under present conditions. Unter den damaligen Umständen war sie nach meiner Auffassung die einzig mögliche Form und sie hat auch gezeigt, dass Deutschland aus seinem tiefen Elend 
der Verarmung und Arbeitslosigkeit in kurzer Zeit zu einer verhältnismäßigen Blüte wieder gekommen war. Was Hitler's policy never to negotiate, and you knew that as long as he was head of the government, the enemy would not negotiate with Germany. Did you not? Dass die feindliche Propaganda betonte, mit Hitler unter keinen Umständen zu verhandeln, wusste ich. Dass Hitler nicht verhandeln wollte, unter keinen Umständen, das war mir auch bekannt, aber nicht in diesem Zusammenhang. Up until this point in the proceedings, the courtroom had seen ample evidence linking Goering to all four charges and Jackson was looking to make a quick and firm association between the record and the defendant himself. Yet Guerin confidently sat in the box eyeing the chief prosecutor with an air of superiority and smugness. Jackson asked him, quote, And upon coming to power, you immediately abolished parliamentary government in Germany, correct? End quote. Guerin's steely reply was that, We no longer found it to be of necessity parliamentary procedure was done away with because the opposition parties were disbanded and forbidden. Jackson then pressed on in gaining admissions regarding the leadership principles of their government and their disdain for democratic rule. Growing increasingly testy with Goering's calmly delivered and matter-of-fact answers regarding the necessity of suppressing and imprisoning the communists, Jackson lost his cool. He interrupted the Reichsmarschall's response and adamantly proclaimed that, quote, Omit that, omit that, I have not asked for that at all. If you will just answer my question, we shall give you a great deal of time. Your counsel will be permitted to bring out any explanation you want to make. Now, you considered it necessary to prohibit court review for taking people into what you call protective custody, unquote. Goering responded with, uh, this I answered clearly, but I would like to make an explanation for my... And at that point, he was once again cut off by Jackson, who was then scolded by the tribunal president for interrupting a witness's response. A snarky Jackson then declared, quote, The tribunal thinks you should be permitted to explain, and it will listen to your answers. End quote. Goering was getting the better of Jackson and the ensuing questions about state-organized assassinations of political opponents did Jackson no better. Goering readily admitted that when it was of state necessity to kill an enemy, they did so much like the MI5 or the Secret Service would for the US and Britain. Jackson made special note to revolve his questions around the concept of state-sponsored, organized, and executed terror directed towards the German people. public acts which you performed on the Jewish question. First, did you proclaim the Nuremberg Law? As Reichstagspräsident, jawohl, habe ich schon betont. What date was that? 35, in Nuremberg, September. And that was the beginning of the legal measures taken against the Jews, not? Das war eine legale Then, your third public act was on the 22nd of April, 1938, when you published penalties for veiling the character of a Jewish enterprise within the Reich, was it not? Jawohl. It was in this vein that he sought to demonstrate to the tribunal the uniquely anti-democratic, authoritarian, and criminal nature of the Nazi regime. He charged that there wasn't any popular sentiment for Hitler, that his rule was based on fear and violence, and that the men in the dock were sadistic creatures only interested in enriching themselves and exerting raw power. Following Jackson's relentless questioning of Goering regarding the chain of command and of ultimate authority, 
he repeatedly answered that he was following the orders of the Fuhrer. He said he could not have been expected to disown Hitler, regardless of the war situation, because he was a soldier first and foremost, and that anything but pure loyalty would have been tantamount to suicidal and disgusting treason. On the topic of whether the war was a futile endeavor for the Nazi government, Jackson attempted to have him admit that he continued with the aggression despite the fleeting hope of victory. Goering was adamant that he felt that the war was still tenable into 1945, and that he was personally hoping for a stalemate with the Allies. This was so they could preserve some semblance of victory for the German people. After some very long-winded answers, Jackson harshly insisted Goering simply answer the questions. Quote, I know that time may not mean quite as much to you as it does to the rest of us. Can you simply answer yes or no to my questions, sir? Unquote. He went on to continuously insist that it was only Hitler who decided matters of supreme importance, and that he was simply following orders when it came to the evaporating war efforts. Jackson moved into asking about the Reichstag fire of 1933. He skillfully framed his questions around the idea that Goering himself had been the arsonist in question. Jackson got him to admit that he was present the night of the blaze, that they had a list of communist patsies ready to arrest, that he had underground access to the building, and that a witness had confessed to acquiring incendiary materials at the behest of Goering. And, most importantly, that the Nazis had already drafted the Enabling Act and had it on hand for delivery to President Hindenburg. This legislation would effectively impose martial law with Hitler in total control. Though not actually admitting guilt, it was all but obvious that Goering was in some manner culpable for the fire, and in hindsight, it appeared to be a premeditated false flag attack. Jackson began laying his next trap for the Reichsmarschall. He had Goering confirm that the upper echelon of the Nazi hierarchy, namely Hitler, Goebbels, Himmler, Heydrich, and Bormann, had either committed suicide or been killed in the final days of the war. The convenience of this reality was too obvious for the prosecution to ignore. Jackson immediately went on the attack. Quote, and those are the chief persons in your testimony who have been mentioned as being responsible for the charges in this trial. Hitler for everything, Goebbels for inciting riots against the Jews, Himmler who deceived Hitler, and Bormann who misled him in his final testimony? Unquote. It was patently obvious what Goering was attempting to do. As sheer luck would have it, all the real criminals were dead. The remainder of Goering's cross-examination was spent on asserting the likelihood that Germany had indeed begun to rearm in 1933, immediately after Hitler assumed power. This pointed towards the obvious objective of premeditated warfare on the part of the Nazi hierarchy, of which Goering was an integral part. Jackson outlined how Goering was named to be the Commissioner for Raw Materials and Foreign Currency, alongside the Reichsbank President to aid the cause of rearmament. Jackson then questioned why Goering would be named to this aforementioned post, then tasked with leading the four-year plan, and then shortly afterwards, created a company called Reichswerk Goering. Why would he do this if there were no plans to rearm and plan a continental war? As a side note, Reichswerk Goering was a state-owned conglomerate that merged many of the leading mining and steel industries under one umbrella almost exclusively for military purposes. So proud was the Reichsmarschall of this project that he bestowed his own name upon it. Jackson continued pressing. He then forced Goering to admit to all the laws he had rubber-stamped against the Jews as president of the Reichstag. This included the Nuremberg Laws, the prohibition of Jewish persons from political life, the slow strangulation of Jewish businesses through regulation and taxation, and most damningly, that recovered documents showed Goering had corresponded with SS Gruppenführer Heydrich. The topic? To implement a final solution to the Jewish question in 1939. Goering played semantics with the language and attempted to redefine some of the words. It was becoming obvious to everyone present that he was almost certainly aware and guilty of all the charges that were laid against him. 
for it would stretch the limits of fantasy to assume otherwise, considering the massive evidence against him. On March 20th, the standoff between Goering and Jackson ended. The former Reichsmarschall held his own against the seasoned lawyer. He maintained a poised delivery with a consistent strategy of obfuscating details while ignoring the bigger picture of the accusations. But as will be seen shortly, Goering's toughest opponent may well have been watching the entire time. After three days of cross-examination by Justice Jackson, it was now the British and Russian turn to interrogate Hermann Goering. Sir Maxwell Fife went first and hit a stroke of legal brilliance when setting up his line of questioning and exposed the deductive reasoning implied by Goering's testimony. Fife almost entirely focused upon a notorious incident at the Stalag Luft III POW camp in occupied Poland which was a prison for captured Allied pilots. For an entire year from 1943 to 1944, nearly 100 interred soldiers worked secretly on a tunnel system underneath the prison that they would use to attempt a daring escape during the spring of 1944. 76 of these men escaped in a bold nighttime dash, but eventually all but three would be recaptured. This series of events would eventually become the much-celebrated 1963 action film, The Great Escape. Hollywood aside though, the Luftwaffe was in charge of that particular site, and thus, Goering was of the ultimate authority. Hitler then ordered that all recaptured POWs were to be summarily executed. Goering and Keitel had allegedly tried to convince the Fuhrer that a blanket execution of highly skilled servicemen would not only look horrendous, but would actively encourage the Allies to execute any German pilots they had in their custody. After some consideration for their plight, Hitler ordered that 50 of them be executed, and that Himmler's SS was in charge of carrying out this order. Goering then testified that he was absolutely appalled by the lack of respect for the captured airmen and their impending executions. He testified that, quote, I never opposed the Fuhrer so clearly and so strongly as in this matter, and I strongly gave him my views about it. After that, there was no conversation between the Fuhrer and myself for months, unquote. Was this a matter of truth? or a matter of Goering trying to appeal to an Anglo-Saxon gentleman's codes of sorts, because of the British prosecution. Shortly after affirming Goering's deep knowledge and concern for the Great Escape incident, Prosecutor Fife then directly went on to ask about the concentration camps and Hitler's understanding of the situation. Fife asked, quote, The Fuhrer, at any rate, he must have had full knowledge of what was happening with regard to the concentration camps the treatment of the Jews, and the treatment of the workers, must not he have known?" Unquote. Goering replied that, I already mentioned, it is my opinion that the Fuhrer did not know about the details in the camps, about the atrocities as described here. As far as I know him, I do not believe he was informed. Fife then asked, quote, I am not asking about the details. I am asking about the murder of four or five million people. Are you suggesting that nobody in power in Germany, except Himmler and perhaps Kaltenbrunner, knew about this?" Unquote. Goering replied that he was still of the opinion that the Fuhrer did not know about these exact figures, or of the atrocities at large. Seemingly oblivious to the implication, Goering had dutifully walked right into Fife's ingenious rhetorical trap. How could it be that Goering had known so much about these 50 men destined for execution, but knew nothing about the millions of people executed in the concentration camps throughout Europe? It beggars belief, does it not? The prosecution rested shortly thereafter, and Goering returned to the defendant's box for the remainder of the trial. Although coolly combative and cleverly worded, 
the Reichsmarshal's testimony did little to aid his own defense or distract away the judge's attention from the mountains of documentary evidence. The facts, not sophistry, would eventually triumph over the impending war criminal. The next defense case to be presented was that of the seemingly unstable Rudolf Hess. In stark and direct contrast to Goering's three-week marathon of witnesses, cross-examination, elaborate oratory, and high legal drama, Hess's was to be short and somewhat bewildering. At some point during the proceedings, Hess had privately admitted to the prison psychiatrist that he was anxious and ashamed to take the stand. He was worried that he would not have the mental fortitude or the tactical wherewithal to correctly understand the questions or even endure the emotional rigors of cross-examination. On March 26th, Hess's defense counsel, Alfred Seidel, proclaimed to the court that his client would not be appearing on the stand, and furthermore, that he refused to recognize the legitimacy of the tribunal or the proceedings themselves. This was a misguided attempt at distraction and confusion. Chief Justice Lawrence duly reasserted that Hess was to stand trial regardless of his personal feelings because the authoritative supremacy of the Nuremberg Charter had already been established and recognized by the governing IMT. He would be held accountable if a judgment was rendered so. After this jumbled attempt to have Hess removed from the proceedings, Seidel went on to pronounce that his client would accept full responsibility for his actions within the Reich, but he would not agree to any of the charges relating to other countries. No testimony or witnesses were offered, but Seidel did try to enter into evidence a large collection of German court verdicts relating to the legality of the Treaty of Versailles. Once again, the question of the treaty's place in the historical timeline of World War II was being brought into question. If this treaty had not been put into effect, would any of the defendants be sitting in the dock? Would the Nazi party even have been formed? Would tens of millions of lives have been spared? And would the allies of World War I take responsibility for pushing the initial domino of violence? Both Justice Lawrence and Fife objected to this motion on the grounds that the Treaty of Versailles had no part in the criminal charges brought against any of the defendants. Furthermore, they asked, if these documents were admitted, did they really think that it excused the defendants for their plans and their actions? Seidel's lackluster answer had the motion to admit new evidence thrown out, and Hess's defense nearly complete. It was well known that Hess had been in Allied captivity since May of 1941, so the opportunity for him to have committed most of the crimes was much narrower than his co-defendants. Perhaps his failed attempt to single-handedly negotiate a truce with England would lend him the benefit of the doubt? Would he be granted leniency because of his alleged mental state? Could he be viewed as a relatively innocent member of the party, considering he was not in any sense a military man? or the organizer of the security apparatus? His fate was now purely in the hands of the judges, all of whom were growing weary of the antics and unreliability of Hess's character and mental state. March 28, 1946, it saw the beginning of the Ribbentrop defense presentation. As Hitler's Minister of Foreign Affairs and top diplomat, he had to this point in the trial become a well-known name because of his relational overlap between the political and military side of the party. He was the internationally recognized friendly face of Hitler's Nazi Germany, and the Nuremberg Tribunal had already admitted caches of evidence with his name, orders, and indeed, his signatures on them. He was being charged with all four counts of the indictment and would need to launch a blistering and bulletproof defense to slip his head out of the proverbial and actual noose. Ribbentrop's defense counsel was Dr. Martin Horn, and after a failed attempt to have nearly 300 documents admitted into evidence, he called his first witness, 
Baron Gustav Steengrot von Moyland to the stand. A summation of the witnesses' testimony revolved around the ideas that Hitler had little use for a foreign secretary, that Ribbentrop had little influence over the Hitler-Himmler dynamic, and that he stayed in his position to try and curb the excesses of the government. Although self-deprecating in nature, Horn presented the case that this powerless foreign minister had the best of intentions in fulfilling his ministerial role, and, to that end, Hitler had summarily marginalized his efforts in the pursuit of power and property. Next, Horn called Ribbentrop's personal secretary to the stand, one Marguerite Blank. She went on to describe how vying for Hitler's attention and praise was of the utmost importance to the defendant, and that, quote, in carrying out his role set to him by the Fuhrer, Ribbentrop showed utter disregard for his own personal interests, unquote. This puzzling admission so enthused the prosecution teams that they declined cross-examination altogether based on the damning nature of her statements. How could Ribbentrop have been simultaneously obeying every command with dutiful expedience and trying to mitigate Hitler's excesses? The final Ribbentrop witness was the Reich Foreign Ministry senior interpreter, Paul Schmidt. He attempted to paint the defendant in the light of an unwilling participant whose sole job was to relay pronouncements from Hitler to the necessary parties involved within the international relations community. This was just another instance of attempting to level a following orders defense. But under cross-examination by Prosecutor Fife, he confirmed from Schmidt the details from a sworn affidavit in 1945 that showed Ribbentrop's complicity with counts one and two of the indictment. Namely, that Ribbentrop had been present, along with many of the men in the dock, in the meetings to wage war across Europe. He noted in his sworn statement that the objectives of the Nazi hierarchy from the very beginning were to recombine the Germanic territories of the Reich and then expand their territorial boundaries for the much sought after Lebensraum. Ribbentrop's witnesses did the inverse of his team's initial conception and had actually added guilt onto his case as opposed to alleviating it. He would now need to make a dazzling testimony to try and present himself in a somewhat positive light. And at this, he failed terribly and thoroughly. He ironically took the stand on April Fool's Day of 1946. Ribbentrop made a largely incoherent speech about the Treaty of Versailles, the near civil war Germany was on the brink of, and that the Soviets were equally guilty of waging aggressive war by the breaking of their agreement. It was brought to his attention that the Treaty of Versailles had already been recognized as non-admissible to the proceedings. Furthermore, that Germany had in fact unilaterally broken all the treaties she was a party to drafting, negotiating, and signing. The final nail in Ribbentrop's coffin was hammered home by Prosecutor Fife. He asked about his honorary Obergruppenführer rank within the SS, and if he could provide details about how and why that came to be. Ribbentrop answered that he had been conferred the title by Hitler himself, and that he was unable to refuse it. Denying the title would have been understood as a supreme insult and a death sentence. Fife then calmly produced documentation that showed Ribbentrop had indeed requested the position of his own free will. The prosecution noted an application filled out and sent by Ribbentrop himself to the SS office requesting official membership. Fife went further still by noting how Ribbentrop even stipulated his ring size so that he could properly be fitted with the infamous death's head jewelry and ceremonial dagger. He feigned ignorance at all the evidence and pathetically tried to present the idea that he was ignorant of the concentration camps. This exchange is extremely illuminating when Ribbentrop is asked about the Matthausen camp. Quote, I should like to state on my oath that I heard the name Matthausen for the first time in this trial. I believe I can make this much more brief for you. I can say that I heard only of three concentration camps until I came here. Dachau, Oranienburg, and Thergsenstadt. All the other names I heard here for the first time. 
The Therdienstadt camp was an old people's home for Jews, and I believe was visited a few times by the International Red Cross. I never heard previously of all the other camps. I wish to make that quite clear." Unquote. Fife followed this up by asking, quote, Do you know that near Mauthausen, there were 33 camps at various places within a comparatively short distance? And 45 camps which the Commandant did not give the names because there were so many of them? And in 33 of the camps, there were over 100,000 internees? Are you telling the Tribunal that in all your journeys to Fuschel, you never heard of the camps at Matthausen, where over 100,000 people were locked up?" Unquote. Ribbentrop responded with, quote, That was entirely unknown to me, and I can produce dozens of witnesses who can testify to that. Dozens. Unquote. Fife responded with, quote, I do not care how many witnesses you produce. I ask you again to look at the map. You were a responsible minister in the government of that country from the 4th of February 1938 until the defeat of Germany in May of 1945, a period of seven and a quarter years. Are you telling the tribunal that anyone could be a responsible minister in that country where hundreds of concentration camps existed and not know anything about them except two? Unquote. Ribbentrop said, it may be amazing, but it's 100% true. Fife responded with, quote, I suggest to you that it is not only amazing, but that it is so incredible that it must be absolutely false. How could you be so ignorant of the camps? Did you never see Himmler? Unquote. Ribbentrop responded with, quote, Nine, I never saw him about any of these things. These things were kept absolutely secret, and we heard here, for the very first time, what actually went on in them. Nobody knew anything about them. That may sound astounding, but I am positively convinced that the gentleman in the dock knew absolutely nothing about what was going on in them." Unquote. Did you say you must accept the whole of these demands? Nein, das glaube ich nicht. Das habe ich ihm nicht gesagt. Es hat von mir aus auf Herrn Schuschnigg nicht der geringste Druck stattgefunden, denn ich weiß noch, dass diese ungefähr ein- bis anderthalbstündige Unterredung, die ich mit ihm hatte, die sich mehr auf Allgemeinheiten beschränkte und äh, auf äh, Persönliches, dass in dieser Unterredung mir die Persönlichkeit von Schuschnigg damals sehr sympathisch vorkam und ich das nachher auch meinen Herrn gegenüber geäußert habe. Also ein Druck meinerseits auf Schuschnigg hätte nicht stattgefunden. His fellow defendants were dismayed and dejected about the state of their defenses. Not only were they unable to admit new evidence or have their speeches heard at painful lengths, but the prosecution was destroying them one by one with efficient ruthlessness. Onwards still they went, hoping the next defendant would have more luck in presenting their actions in a more empathetic light. The poised military confidence of Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel was slated as the next defense. In contrast to the previous cases heard, Keitel did not take to a meandering, pussyfooted, and deferential character. Rather, he took the charges head-on and readily admitted his actions at the behest of the prosecution. The sole objective of his arguably honest defense was simply that he was following orders as per the Fuhrer's request. For Keitel had been a lifelong military man, and at the age of 19, he joined the Prussian army. He was a man born of simple means in the German countryside, 
His whole existence seemed to exude unquestioning loyalty and service to Germany through active military service. Unbeknownst to him though, Keitel was largely the butt of Nazi jokes within the party hierarchy. He was commonly portrayed as a lapdog and a yes-man, and he was widely considered to be a lackluster military mind and only chosen because of his slavish obedience to Hitler. When on the stand, Keitel was unabashedly curt with his answers, and, while implicated himself in war crimes, was nonetheless relatively honest. And compared to Goering's semantics, Hess's cowardice, and Ribbentrop's dejectedness, Keitel's brazen assuredness was a wake-up call to the courtroom. Everyone sat up a little straighter while listening to the field marshal, and attempted to understand the admitted complicity in the acts he was allegedly obliged to carry out. For example, when asked about the attack and the crimes committed against and within the Soviet territory, Keitel steelily responded that, quote, I bear the responsibility which arises from my position for all those things which resulted from these orders and which are connected with my name and signature, end quote. He furthermore, out of hand rejected the appeals to morality and his conscience by again coldly announcing that, quote, I had misgivings about questions of a purely political nature, but I took the position that a soldier has every right to have confidence in his government leadership. A military man is obliged to do his duty and obey his commands." End quote. Was the field marshal being forthright? Or was this simply a thin veneer of military honor merely to cover the ugly belligerence that lay within? Was the absence of a moral code of conduct truly a soldier's duty, regardless of the results or the methods employed? And then, when he made the protest, did you say words to this effect? I'm reading, of course, from General Vestoff's statement. I don't care a damn. We discussed it in the Fuhrer's presence, and it cannot be altered. Uh, General Vestoff says, the self-marshal gave us detailed instructions to publish a list in the camp, giving the names of those shot as a warning. That was done. That was a direct order that we couldn't disobey. And in the statement which uh, your counsel has put in, General Vestoff says, gentlemen, this must stop. We cannot allow this to happen again. The officers who have escaped will be shot. Keitel's case was significantly damaged after the prosecution forced the issue. For though Hitler may have handed down orders on how and when to execute the war, Keitel often took it upon himself to take things a step further still. As was the case with his night and fog decree sent out to the SD and the Gestapo. Within the Night and Fog Decree, he outlined the necessity for rounding up, deporting, and ultimately executing anyone considered dangerous to the Reich. He insisted this happen under the cover of night, so as to minimize exposure to the public and to inflict the maximum amount of fear. Around 7,000 people are said to have disappeared under this directive that was a heavy-handed response to increasing French resistance in 1941 hardly a purely military move from any vantage point. Time after time, and response after response, Keitel continuously invoked the necessity of military obedience to high command. He was carrying out the wishes and aims of his superior, and questioning Hitler's choices, or his morality, was not the role of an officer-class soldier. More damaging still was the cross-examination by Prosecutor Redenko, who asked about document 389 PS. This was a memo issued by Cattell to the Wehrmacht ordering that the killing of even one German soldier must be avenged by the killing of 50 to 100 communists wherever they could be found. Keitel agreed that the document was correct, but that he had attempted to dissuade Hitler with such a high number and that 5 to 10 communists per German would be more than sufficient. 
The order of magnitude aside, Keitel was coldly honest about his orders throughout and left little question of his overall guilt. Although robotic and unfeeling, Keitel did convince some in the court that he was an honorable military man through and through. That his actual integrity lay in the willingness to exact directives and carry out unpleasant, though arguably necessary, functions. But within the scope of the IMT and the international press, Keitel merely found another way to prove himself guilty. His fate was all but sealed. In part four of this Nuremberg trial series, we will continue to revisit the Nazi defense cases. This will include the SS man Kaltenbrunner, party philosopher Rosenberg, propagandist Stryker, architect Speer, and General Yodel, all of whom took different defense approaches in attempting to save their lives from the tribunal hangman. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj, and cinematography for the YouTube videos was by Matthew Zink. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.